Jesus to return and reclaim what is rightfully his. And in the meantime, all of us as followers of Jesus, all of us as believers in Messiah, we remain as exiles. We're not quite home yet. We're citizens of another kingdom, and it's like we're, we're on a long journey just trying to get back home. And so the, the book of First Peter and Second Peter as well really keeps this as a point of emphasis to remind us who we're supposed to be and what does it look like to live as followers of the king when we're not quite living in the kingdom yet. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 1, we've been through a lot already, and we're going to pick up in verse 17 this morning. And this is going to be a, a message that I titled, Jesus, our Passover Lamb. Jesus, our Passover Lamb. So there's going to be some really good things in here that I hope will encourage you guys as it has me. So what I'm going to do is just jump right in. We're going to read verses 17 through 21 this, this morning. And we're going to talk about what it means for Jesus to be our Passover lamb. 1 Peter 1, verse 17. He says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. There it is again. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So Peter brings up this idea about Jesus being our Passover lamb, and I thought it would be a good opportunity for us to to revisit that a little bit today and to try to get our minds in the historical context of, of what the first century believers and followers of Jesus would have understood when they talk about Jesus as being our Passover lamb. So the first thing I want to share with you guys today, if you're following along in, in the bulletin or on your listening guide, is we're going to talk about Passover. Passover like all of God's appointed feasts, it serves as a prophetic pattern of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Passover, like all of God's appointed feasts, serves as a prophetic pattern of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. God is all about patterns. The book of Isaiah says that he has declared the end from the what? From the beginning. We could go all the way back to the book of Genesis itself and begin to see patterns that God has set up in the creation account itself. And he takes these patterns throughout all of the scriptures, all throughout redemptive history. We see God dealing with his people in these patterns. And, and the way these patterns work is that sometimes they may, they may be a, a, a survey, a 
present purpose for the generation at hand, but then they also paint a picture or a foreshadow of something down the road later that is to come. And so everything is done with intent and purpose. And so when you begin to see the, the history of God's people and how he's interacted with his people, you begin to pick up on these patterns. And, and I'm of the persuasion that I believe that God is still dealing with us in patterns. And there are many things that are yet to be fulfilled in the future that he has already kind of foreshadowed for us in the past. And, and it's like it happened partially in the past or maybe there was a... a a temporary fulfillment of something that may have happened in the prophecies of Scripture in the past. But there's a greater fulfillment that we're all waiting for in the future. And a lot of these things are going to play out in the very same way, following the very same pattern. And Passover is one of these patterns. Now, you guys have heard me teach, and, and I wanted to spend a, bit, a minute here, is that in Leviticus chapter 23, and we're, gonna, we're not going to spend much time there this morning because I want to spend more time in Exodus 12, which is where the original very first Passover takes place. But what we learn is that Passover, along with six other divine appointments, okay? And I, I want to tell you this word because it's, a, it's an interesting word, and, and it's, these are called the Moedim. Moedim just simply means appointed times. Okay, this is a Hebrew word that means God's divine appointments. These are his divine appointments that he set up, he established for his covenant people. Okay, so you have, you have Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You have the Feast of the Day of First Fruits, Pentecost. Then you have the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles. Those are the seven. Okay, you can read all about this in Leviticus chapter 23, and it's in other places of Scripture as well. But the reason these things are so interesting to me, first of all, I want, you to, I, want to I want you to understand what these appointed times, these divine appointments are. First of all, they're big parties. Now, who likes a good party? What do you do at a party? You have lots of what? Good food. You usually have some music. Maybe you start to dance. Maybe you have wonderful fellowship. And, of course, in, in the context of these Moedim, against the appointed feast of God, this is what God wanted his people to do. He said, I want you to take a day off work. Who, who's down with that? I love a good day off work. Don't do any work. Everybody take a day off. I want you to cook the best food that you have. I want you to sing and worship and praise me and spend time with each other and fellowship with each other. And sometimes like the Feast of Unleavened Bread would go on for seven days. The Feast of Tabernacles would go on for seven days. Really, it goes to eight, eight days. Um, and, and so these are just good times. These are feasts. That's why they're called feasts. Now, there's only one of the divine appointments on God's calendar that you don't eat. It's actually a day of fasting. Does anybody know which one that is? The Day of Atonement. So all the other ones, good food, take a day off, enjoy, sing, dance, eat good food, enjoy your company. But there's one day of the year, which was the Day of Atonement, where there was no, no, no feasting. It was all about fasting and praying and examining yourself. But that's the, these are the divine appointments of God. And so these feasts that God established for his people were to be a joy and a blessing, certainly not any type of a burden. Okay? So these are good things. Now, he also calls these um, appointed feasts, he calls them holy convocations or sacred assemblies. And the reason that's important, because it's another interesting Hebrew word that I think you all need to be familiar with, 
So remember, moedim is the word for appointed feast. And then this next word is mikra. And it's a Hebrew word. And it's so interesting. And I never got this until I started studying the text. This word mikra is translated in your Bible as a divine, as a uh, holy convocation or a sacred assembly. So that means God wants to bring all of his people what? Together. We get that, right? So it's when everybody comes together around these divine appointments on the calendar. And here's what's interesting about this word mikra. It is, it is defined as, it has, it has many definitions, you know, a, a corporate gathering, a sacred assembly. But one of the definitions of this word mikra is that it is a dress rehearsal. These are dress rehearsals. So if you've ever been in a play, right, like coming up, leading up to a play when you're going to have the big opening night and it's the real deal, right? Well, you have several what before the play? Several dress rehearsals. You get all dressed up. You go through the whole thing. You say your lines. You do it just as if it was the real thing. But it's not the real thing. It's just a, it's just a warm up. It's just a dress rehearsal. And so when God said, I want all my people to come together on these appointed times of the year during the calendar, on the calendar, he said, you're doing it for a purpose. You're not just doing it you know, for, for no reason at all, but you're doing it actually as a dress rehearsal for something later to come. Now, this is where I really began to get my attention. And so these appointed feasts, such as Passover, they were intended to serve as shadows, okay, or types, types and shadows. You've probably heard that before. To illustrate and point us towards something more significant, and I should better say it, not just something more significant, but someone more significant. And what is his name? His name is Jesus. So the, the next thing you need to understand about these divine appointments, such as Passover, is that they're all about who? They're all about Jesus. Every single one of them is giving us another um, characteristic or another um, glimpse into the person and the work and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why these things are so amazing. And so God is calling his people together every year, and he wants us to worship and glorify the person of Jesus Christ and remember and rehearse his work in his life, death, and his resurrection. Now, this is, what I, this is where I want you to, to understand what's so important about these divine appointments, these appointed feasts. Every single significant event that has ever occurred in redemptive history occurred or corresponded with one of these feasts. Let me say that again. Okay, so don't you think God may be... And he's saying, I want you to remember these things every single year. They're like dress rehearsals. They, they serve a, a greater purpose. They point us to something more significant. But the reason he's doing that is because saying, because if you'll do this every single year, somewhere down the road in the future, I'm going to show up on that day, on, during that time, and I'm going to do something amazing. I'm going to do something supernatural. And so that's the point that God established with these appointed feasts, these divine appointments, is that he wanted his people to be on his time frame, on his calendar, and they were foreshadowing the coming and the ministry of Jesus Christ, all right? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. 
He says, therefore, let no one judge you in regard to food and drink or in regard to the observance of a festival or of a new moon or a Sabbath day, which are a shadow of the thing to come, but the substance is Christ. Now, what's Paul talking about here? He's writing, remember, he's writing to the the Colossian church. The majority of the people in Colossae, were they... Were they Jewish or were they Gentiles? They were Gentiles. But guess what they had done? They had come to embrace and believe in the God of Israel, in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And they began to observe and recognize the benefit and the value. And to celebrate Jesus in this way, they were getting lots of judgment and lots of pushback from their fellow Gentiles. In other words, they weren't keeping the pagan holidays anymore that the Gentiles were keeping and instead they replaced them with these appointed feasts and they were getting judged and persecuted and ostracized because of it and Paul is saying don't let anybody judge you because you're doing these things he's saying these things are good because they are a shadow of something to come the substance of is Jesus Christ and so this was what was so very important is that Everything about these appointed times, if they are shadows, then the object that's casting that shadow is the person of Jesus Christ. See, the object that casts the shadow is obviously always greater than the shadow itself. And so let me give you some examples, and and this is why I think this is so very important. This is why Peter's talking about Jesus as our Passover lamb. All right, you ready? Listen to this. When did Jesus die? When did he die? On Passover. Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was crucified on Passover. Number two, Jesus is called the living bread that came down from heaven, John 6, 51. He says, and this bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, what kind of life did Jesus live? A sinless life. And when they put his body in the ground... That was the first day of the feast of unleavened bread. His body is like the bread. And what's unique about unleavened bread? Unleavened bread was made without what? Yeast. Yeast was a symbol of sin and corruption. So now you have Jesus died on Passover, and yet he lived a sinless life without yeast. And he put his body in the grave on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and his body did not corrupt or decay in the grave, did it? No, it did not. His body was preserved. So he fulfilled the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Oh, by the way, the first Sunday after the day of Passover, the first Sunday of the week after the day of Passover, was the day of first fruits. This is the third appointed uh, feast on God's calendar. When did Jesus raise from the dead? On the day of first fruits. Are you tracking with me? See, the Bible says, this is what Paul says. He says that those things which the prophets and Moses said would come, they came true, that Christ rose from among the dead. Now, all of a sudden, there's three for three. He died on Passover. He was buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he was raised to life on the day of what? First fruits. What's the next divine appointment on God's calendar? It's called the day of Pentecost. It's also called the Feast of Weeks. Didn't something significant happen on the day of Pentecost? 
Seems like to me something very major happened. What was it? The pouring, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now we're four for four. You see what I'm saying? The four of the most significant events on God's in, in redemptive history on God's prophetic calendar, every single one of them were fulfilled on the exact what? The exact day. At the precise moment. Now you understand what I'm saying when I say God works in patterns. He's up to something big on these divine appointments. Now we have three more divine appointments on the calendar that were, were considered the fall feast. That's trumpets. Day of atonement that is yet to come. And I'm just, I'm just of the opinion that Jesus will fulfill the last three feasts when he comes again at the end. Okay? But we know for sure he's fulfilled the first what? The first four of them. Okay? Now, this is what's so beautiful is that God is inviting us to remember these days because these are the days that Jesus came to fulfill in his life and his death and in his resurrection. Now, you guys have, you've been listening to me long enough. And, you know, I've been on my own kind of spiritual journey. I've been trying to figure stuff out. Um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to understand how does all this fit together. And so I want to take just a minute to answer some questions for you. Because I think a lot of you guys have, have maybe, maybe there's been a little bit of confusion. Or maybe just a little uncertain about what I'm trying to say and what I'm trying to teach. And so I just I want to break a few things down for you guys. Just I'm just telling you, this is where I am on my spiritual journey. At the end of the day, all of us have to information. That's between you and the Lord. I'm not telling you one way or the other. I'm just trying to tell you where I am. Okay, when it comes to these appointed feasts, this is where I am. This is what I'm, I'm kind of struggling through. I'm wrestling with a little bit. So here's what the number one question inevitably comes up to me when I start talking about these divine appointments. They said, somebody will come to me and say, well, Brother Marcus, you know, Jesus, he fulfilled all those Jewish feasts. And they were only for the Jews. So we don't have to do them anymore. So are you trying to, you trying to tell me that I need to become Jewish? Are you trying to become Jewish? And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm doing. That's not what I'm saying at all, Okay. Now, this is important, guys. Stay with me. First of all, here's the thing that you understand. These are not Jewish feasts. They're not. See, that's the first thing that we get wrong in our head. We think, when we think Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles and the day of, we, we think those are for the who? Those are for the Jews. They're not Jewish feasts. Did you know that? In Leviticus chapter 23 which gives us a full chapter about these divine appointments. Do you know what God says? He says, these are the divine appointments that I have established. He says, these are my feasts. God says, they're whose? They're his. They're, they're his appointed times. They're not for the Jews. Just, quote unquote, for the Jews. See, God did this from the beginning of creation and what he's doing is that he's giving these opportunities for his covenant people. Now, look, how do we become part of God's covenant people? We've talked a lot about that even in the book of study of 1 Peter. Remember, whether you're of Jewish descent or Gentile descent, when you put your faith in Jesus Messiah, now you become part of his covenant people. You understand? 
So it doesn't matter, Jew or Gentile, all God is saying is, I'm the God of Israel. These are my appointed feasts, and whoever wants to come and worship me and love me and enter into a covenant with me, I've given these times, I've given these festivals, these parties, I've given them for you to be a blessing, to be enjoyed, something to be observed and, and, and celebrated. And we understand from what the Bible says is that we as once who were Gentiles, I'm not Jewish, but I am a Gentile who believes in the God of Israel and puts faith in the, in the Savior of the Jews. His name is what? His name is Jesus. And so by faith, now I become part of this commonwealth or this greater thing that God's doing called the commonwealth of Israel. I become part of that. And by becoming part of God's covenant people, I get to participate in these wonderful covenants and these promises and in all of these blessings. Okay? I get to do these things and get frustrated with. They think, I'm trying to teach you that you have to do this in order to have like salvation or you have to do these things in order to, to be some kind of super spiritual person. I'm not telling you you have to do anything. That's between you and who? You and God, you and his word, you determine what you think you should do by obeying Jesus and serving him. I'm not telling you you have to do it like it's something bad. I'm telling you, you what? You get to do it. This is something that we get to do. It's a blessing in our life, and it's something that we should consider. That's all I'm saying. Let's just consider what it would look like for us to understand these appointed feasts. Okay? So it's not just for the Jews. They're God's feasts. They're his feasts. We get to participate in that because we become part of his covenant people. Now, here's another objection I get. Well, Brother Marcus, Jesus fulfilled all the feasts, right? We just talked about it. He was the four for four, the first four feasts in the spring. He, he fulfilled them in his coming, didn't he? Yes, he did. And so I've heard people say, well, you know what, Pastor Marcus? He fulfilled all those things. Did Jesus fulfill the virgin birth when he was born into the world 2,000 years ago? Did he? Of course he did. Did you celebrate Christmas last year? Why? He fulfilled it. Let me ask you this. Did Jesus fulfill Easter when he was resurrected from the grave? Are you going to celebrate Easter this year? Why? He fulfilled it. Do you get my point? See, it, it's not about whether or not he fulfilled these things as if, oh, they're, they're done and they're gone away with and they're not needed anymore. They're not necessary or not beneficial anymore. That's not, that's not the point at all. Just like we celebrate Christmas and Easter every single year, even though Jesus, what? fulfilled those things in the same way just because he fulfilled Passover and unleavened bread and Pentecost and the day of first fruits, he did fulfill those things but guys there's still true benefit in us remembering what Jesus Christ has done because remember what are these appointed feasts all about who are they all about they're all about Jesus have a party eat good food and worship who worship Jesus does that sound like a bad deal to you doesn't sound like a bad deal to me but we've gotten this negative connotation when it comes to these things because there's been a lot of misinformation in the church. And I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. These are, these, are, these are the things that I'm working through in my own head. Now, one more thing before I move on because I know I'm, I'm taking some time here. We've got plenty of more good stuff to cover. But I want to say this one thing because I think it's important. Historically speaking, all right, so let me give you an example. This year, Easter falls on March 31st. Okay, coming up soon. 
Passover is not until April 22nd. Now, have any of you ever stopped to wonder how those two things got off? I do. Easter is not the same as Passover every year. Did you know that? They're always different. And I began to wonder, why is that? Well, let me give you a little bit of history because this helped me so much to understand. How did we get to the place to where Easter is now 300 years of church history? Do you know what the early church believers were doing? They were celebrating what? Passover. There was no Easter. There was no such thing as Easter. They celebrated Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits and Pentecost. For the first 300 years of church history, that's what the early church was doing. And then later, as the Roman Catholic Church began to have more and more influence and more and more power over the church and became kind of the state church, and again, it's the Roman Catholic Church, here's what happened. In 325, there was the Council of Nicaea. Some of you may have heard of it. This is under Emperor Constantine. They called this council. They were discussing many different things in the church. But one of the things that gets overlooked is that during the Council of Nicaea, um, em the Emperor Constantine and, and the, the leaders of the church, the Roman Catholic Church, they decided to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday, not on Passover. It would no longer be the first Sunday of the after the day of Passover, which it had been historically for hundreds of years. So what happened? They, they moved the worship of the resurrection of Jesus to the first Sunday after the full moon following the spring equinox. Now that's why the, the, the Easter is different every single year. It's because it goes by the, the, new, the full moon during the spring equinox, and that's how they calculate each and every year what day Easter would be. So there was a, a concerted effort by the Roman Catholic Church to say, we're not going to recognize Passover anymore. We're going to come up with a new way to worship Jesus, and it's going to be determined by the spring equinox. And that was the beginning of what we call Easter. Now listen to what Emperor Constantine said. He sent a letter, uh, a decree to the empire. He said in a letter to the churches, he encouraged the total separation of Christianity from in a league with darkness and as Christ killers or as the killers of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, guys, I'm trying to help you understand this because we didn't get here by accident. Now, we're going to celebrate Easter here on March 31st. OK, nothing wrong with that. I love Christmas. I love Easter. I love all of it. I love Resurrection Sunday, whatever you want to call it. But I do want you to see that somewhere along the way through the influence primarily the Roman Catholic Church, we got, we got off what? We got off track. We started following a different calendar. This is real. And so I'm just challenging you and encouraging you today to consider and thinking about it. And you may say, well, what am I supposed to do? Should I keep Passover? I don't know. Maybe so. We've done it here before. We've had Passover here at the church before. We haven't done it in a couple of years. But I would just encourage you to be, number one, be familiar with them. Be familiar with God's appointed feast and figure out ways to celebrate Jesus on these. I think it's very, very important that we understand that God's up to something and that he wants us to get back on his calendar. Okay, whatever that looks like for you, I'm going to leave that between you and the Lord. So the second thing I want to share with you guys is 
is that God ransoms, okay, so now we've established this, this pattern. Now let's talk more specifically about the blood of Jesus as the Passover lamb. Is that God, he ransoms us from bondage with the precious blood of Christ, who Peter calls our Passover lamb. All right, so let's do this. Let's jump over to Exodus 12. Let's go to Exodus 12 this morning so we can, we'll get the context of the very first Passover. Remember the story of the Exodus. God sends plagues on Egypt. Pharaoh refused to let his people go. He hardened his heart. And the Lord finally said, okay, I'm going to send one more plague, the 10th plague. I'm going to send a destroying angel, the angel of death, throughout all the land of Egypt. And it will kill every firstborn son in the land. And in order for you, my people Israel, to escape the angel of death, I'm going to give you some very specific instructions. What did they have to do? They had to take a lamb, a male lamb, undefiled, without spot or blemish, a year old. They had to sacrifice that precious lamb. Innocent lamb, did the lamb do anything wrong? Absolutely not. It was served as a substitute. And they had to take the blood of the lamb and paint it on their what? On their doorpost, on their lintel and on their, on their doorpost. And when the angel of death came through Egypt and saw the what? Saw the blood on your house, what would the angel of death do? Pass over your home and you would be spared and saved. And actually that was the day they were set free. And so, in Exodus chapter 12, just let me, let me read a little bit with this with you guys, and, and we're going to talk a little more about it. It says, uh, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It's the first month of the year for you. Again, God has his own schedule. He says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, you will take a lamb according to their father's houses and a lamb for a household. Okay, look at what it says in verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you will keep it until the 14th day of this month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Remember, Jesus was being crucified at the very same time on the day of Passover. And then they will take the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. And they're going to eat the meal, right? And then it says um, in verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and strike all the firstborn in the land, both man and beast, and, and all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord, and this blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. So this Passover night, guys, is so significant. Now remember, this happened in real history. But God was establishing a pattern because he wanted us to understand that you're to keep the Passover every single year. And in keeping the Passover every single year, you're doing a dress rehearsal. And you're actually pointing and looking towards something more significant in the future. Which we know now as Jesus coming as our what? As our Passover lamb. See, Jesus came to fulfill in a greater picture what that Passover lamb did on the first Passover night. Let me give you a couple of things that I want you to know about the night of Passover. Number one, in, in Exodus, 
12, it says that there was a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt. It says the Israelites, when they left Egypt, they journeyed with about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Now listen, Exodus 12, 38. And a mixed multitude also went up with them and many of their herds and livestock and flocks went along with them. Now why is this important? What is this mixed multitude? Well, let me tell you why it's important. You have all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? But there's also another group coming out with them. Do you know who these people were? Many of them were Egyptians. And there probably were other people from other nations. So let me paint the picture for you. Who's coming out of Egypt? Who's God delivering in the Exodus? It's not just the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it is Israelites and Gentiles. It's a what? It's a mixed multitude. So keep that in mind, because on the very first Passover, it wasn't just ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There also were Gentiles. And why were Gentiles coming out with them? Oh, by the way, they believed in the God of Israel, and they went into a house with the Passover blood over their house as well, and they were saved. So they were delivered and came out with them. Very important. The second thing is that the Passover was to be celebrated by both native-born and foreigners. So both Israelites and Gentiles. Listen to what it says in Exodus 12, 47. It says, The whole congregation of Israel must celebrate Passover. And if a foreigner is with you and wants to celebrate Passover, the males in the household need to be circumcised, okay, to, as the sign of the covenant, and then he may come near and celebrate it, and he will be like a native of the land. It says the same law will apply both to the native and the foreigner who resides among you. Once again, what do we see here? We have Gentiles who believe in the God of Israel. And the same law applies to them. And they're celebrating this Passover along with the children of Israel. And the third thing you see is that the Passover is to be remembered for all time. Exodus 12, 14. This day will be a memorial for you, and you will celebrate it as a feast to the Lord, as a permanent statute for all generations to come. Now, that to me really stands out. Because God is saying, there's no time limit on this thing called Passover. It's to be a statute for you. You're to celebrate it as long as you live a permanent celebration for every generation to come. Now, here's something interesting about the night of Passover, if you don't know much about it. When they painted the blood on the doorposts and on the lintels of the houses, if you think about it, they're putting a horizontal line this way and they're putting a vertical line this way. Those lines of blood would have painted a what? A cross. Just the picture itself, there's be blood, there will be crosses on their doorpost of blood. And that's that picture that we see that everybody that was saved that night was saved by faith. Now listen, God did the work, but in order for you to be saved that night, you had to believe his word and go inside the house and put the blood on your doorpost. And if you were not inside the house doing everything that God told you to do by faith, you weren't saved. You were under the judgment of God. So how were the Israelites saved out of Egypt? By faith in the blood of the Lamb. How are we, you and I saved today? By faith in the blood of the Lamb.
Paul said it this way. He said, you know that it was, I'm sorry, this is uh, Peter. He says, you were ransomed, you were redeemed from the empty ways with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, we know Jesus many times is called the Lamb of God. Didn't that what John said? Um, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so you can see that in the picture of the, of the Exodus story, we're seeing something more significant in the fulfillment of what Jesus Christ did for us. Now, the, ne the next thing I want you to say is very, very important. I'm going to spend just a few minutes here. The third point I have for you today is that this is important. The blood of Christ is sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. But here's what's important. But it's only applied to those who what? This is important. You see, when Jesus went to the cross that day on Passover and died without spot or blemish and the precious blood of Christ was shed for the sins of the whole world, Jesus Christ came and he died for who? Everyone. That's why the Bible says, whosoever will may come. You see, he, he, when he went to the cross, he died for everyone. But, that, but what we teach here at, at this church and as evangelicals, we don't teach a universal salvation of God. Does, just because Jesus died for everyone, does that mean everybody's saved? doesn't mean that. It doesn't just automatically get, get applied to you that way. The only way that the blood of Christ is applied to you, even though it's sufficient for everybody in the whole world to believe, it's only applied to those people who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, somebody may say, well, how can one man die for the whole world? How can one person's death really be enough to save us, to save us from the sin of the whole world collectively put together? And I would say, you know what? If he was just any mere man, he couldn't. Any mere man, mortal, you and me, we, we couldn't do anything. We can't even save ourselves, much less save the whole world. But Jesus, he's no mere man is he Jesus is God in the flesh he's the creator himself and here's what I want to say about Jesus is that Jesus's life is worth more than all the collective souls of mankind combined infinitely more because he is the son of God he is the creator of the world he is the one true savior and son of God and so his worth and his value is of infinite infinite value because of who he is and it is enough to save the whole world from our sins listen to what first john said he says he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins but not for our sins only but also for the sins of the whole world you see what i'm saying here so guys here you are today you may be sitting in the room today and you may understand what i'm saying about jesus and you may believe that Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood for you. But I want you to ask yourself this question. Has that blood been applied to your heart? Are you truly covered 
by the blood of Christ? Do you know for sure that by faith in Jesus, that you've trusted in him and him alone, you're not trusting in anything else, not yourself, not someone else, not your good works, not any kind of religious act or experience. You're not trusting in anything else, but only Jesus, so that if you were to stand before God today, and this is where it gets the rubber meets the road, if any of us were to stand before God today, which all of us will, and we have to give an account. We have to give an answer to God. What's going to get us into heaven? What's going what's to allow us to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And here's our answer. I don't have anything, nothing but the blood of Christ. I got nothing. I got nothing but the precious, valuable, life-saving, life-changing blood of Jesus Christ has been what? Applied. I'm covered by the what? Covered by the blood. And that is what makes us right with God. That's what the whole Passover story is about. Being covered by the blood so the angel of death would pass over us so that we would be spared and we would be saved. And then we would be set free. Set free. And see guys, that's what happened that night on Passover. The Israelites, remember, they were slaves. They were in bondage. But that night, they were liberated. They were saved. And then they were set free. Now, I'm going to ask you this question, and this is our very last point. If you're that person that has trusted in Jesus, and the blood of the Passover lamb has been applied to you, and you've been saved, and you're set free now, okay, what's next? What's a life look like for someone who's been ransomed, who's been redeemed? Well, remember, you and me are unique in the sense that once we're redeemed and ransomed out of this world, we're set free from the bondage of sin and from the oppression of the Satan, and we're set free from this world system. Oh, by the way, this world is no longer our home. So now we're exiles. We're, we're sojourners. We, it's hard. I talked about this a few weeks ago. We don't really have a place. We feel, out of, we feel like a fish out of water sometimes. We feel like we don't really belong. We feel like we're, we're constantly having to fight against the, the ways of this world and the temptations and the struggles and the sin and all the mess that comes with living in this world. So what is it that we are to do once we're saved by the precious blood of the Lamb? And here's my last point. I'm just going to spend a second here. Once you are free, we should not abuse our freedom and become slaves to sin but rather, what the Bible says, we're to serve God and love one another. Let me ask you a question. Once you're saved, can you use your freedom to serve yourself and indulge in, in sin? Actually, you can. Because remember, Jesus Christ came to set you free. You're free. I guess you can do whatever you want. So... Of course, you can do that, but if you really understand what God did for you and how much he loves you, of course, none of us really should want to do that. You understand what I'm saying? He gives us the freedom to do what we want, but that's part of being in a love relationship with somebody. God wants us to understand what he's done for us so that we will turn around and use this freedom not to serve ourselves, not to become slaves to sin, but to serve who? To serve God and love each other. See, we don't want to abuse God's grace. We don't want to break God's heart. We don't want to hurt other people with our freedom. In Galatians 5, listen to what Paul says. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, 
Do not be encumbered once more by a yoke of slavery, for you, brothers, were called to freedom. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. Love each other. That's the greatest commandment, right? Love who? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Like Lynn shared earlier, Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's what? Burdens and we fulfill the law of Christ. You see, when we love God, we obey his commandments. And if we obey God's commandments and we love our neighbor, guess what? They're going to be blessed. They're going to be happy. You're not going to be stealing from them. You're not going to be lying to them. You're not going to be trying to murder them. Right? We keep God's commandments. We love our neighbor. Everybody's blessed. We do good to those who are um, um, in our families and in our circles of life and influence or whatever it may be. And that is what we're supposed to do with this freedom that God has given us. And the last thing I'll say is this, because i got to close this message. But don't forget what Peter said in verse 17. He says, our Father judges everyone's work impartially. So conduct yourselves in fear during your stay as exiles. Now, did you know that God shows no partiality? He doesn't play favorites. Now, let me, let me give you this illustration as I close. You see, as parents, when we have children, we set up a household and we have what for our household? Rules. Right? Every household has rules. And if your child living in that house and you want to live under the protection and the blessing and the provision of that house, you are expected to obey what? Obey the rules. And as long as you obey the rules and uphold the values of that home, guess what? Everybody's happy. Everybody gets along. There's lots of joy and love and peace. But if you're a child and you say one day, you know what? I don't like these rules anymore. I want to go do my own thing. Guess what that, that loving father, that loving mother is going to do? They're going to say, okay, if that's what you really want, then what? You're not going to stay here anymore. You're going to go be on your own. You can go do whatever you want to do, but you're not allowed to do that where? In this home. And as that child gets out from underneath the love and protection and covering of that, of that household and goes out into the world and begins to commit sin, you see, well, here's what happens is that they are going to begin to reap what they sow. Does that mean the father and mother doesn't love them anymore? No. It's a universal law that applies to every single one of us. That's what God is trying to tell you and me. I love you. You're my children now. I want you to stay underneath my blessing and my protection. And as long as you obey me and uphold my values and, and uh, obey my commandments, you'll be blessed. But if you want to go do your own thing and you want to step out underneath from underneath my love and protection, I don't show any partiality. You're still going to have to do what? Reap what you sow. I wish somebody had set me down as I was a 19, 20-year-old kid. And explain that to me a little bit clearer. Because like many of you, unfortunately, I had to learn the hard way. And man, there's so much pain. So much pain. So I'm going to ask the praise team to come up, guys. And, and I want you to understand, you know, I know that was kind of a lot. And, you know, when it comes to this idea of the Passover, maybe this year, April 22nd, hey, maybe try to find a way to think about, hey, let's, let's, let's praise Jesus this year. He's our Passover lamb.
This is when he actually died. Let's, let's take advantage of that. And then let's, let's remember all the things that he's done for us. And, and let's use the freedom that God has, has given us. He's ransomed and redeemed us. He's liberated us from sin. But let's use that not to serve ourselves, not to be selfish. But let's use that freedom to serve one another and to love one another. To serve God and to love one another. So we're going to go to, a Lord, uh, to the Lord in prayer. And I want you to bow your heads with me as we, as we close. Father... Thank you for setting us free. Thank you for sending Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sin, Lord, that he shed his precious blood for us. Thank you for being so gracious, Lord, when we didn't deserve it. And that you're willing to pass over all of our foolishness and sinfulness and selfishness, Lord. And that when you look at us, you don't see our sin anymore you see the precious blood of Christ and we're covered by your blood and Lord I just pray that all of us would not take that for granted and that we would use our freedom as a means to glorify you and it's in Jesus name that we pray and all God's people